Yesterday, I took my son Max out on an adventure. He likes to call them ventures. Dad, are we going to go on a venture today? Here's what an adventure really means in my home. It means that one of the kids or all of them has to hop in the car with me and go wherever I want or wherever I need. Let's pick up some dry cleaning here, there, run to the hardware store. Maybe along the way they'll have some fun. Max started to get a little bored and began to ask where Mommy is. Mommy is the most popular person in the house to my children. No surprise there, right, church? And then he wants to know where Marcella, he calls Sella, and Ruby, who he calls B, he wants to know where they are. Where's Sella and B? Well, and I tried to explain uh, through a bit of fibbery. Have you ever fibbed to your kids? But all for the sake of the glory of God. Uh, Marcella's studying her homework lessons. Definitely not doing that. And B, uh, yeah, B, B's busy. Why? Because she has something else to do. And, and he said, but, but why? Well, because she's got a very busy social calendar, son. I don't know what to tell you. Hey, she's busy. Why? And he did that thing that children do. They just incessantly ask that question. And say it out loud for me so I can hear you say it too. It's the weird word I hear most of my life. Why? Finally, he breaks me. You ever been broken by your child? Oh, I was broken. I just couldn't handle hearing the word why anymore. And so I tell him the truth. B is at a birthday party. Why? Because their friend had another year of life. It's really the anniversary. I, you know, and I go on to explain it all. But why? Can I go to the birthday party? No, son, you can't go. But why? Because they're preparing their taxes. I don't know. You really don't want to go to this party, you know, and then I start lying again. But the thing is, is he wants to know why. Just like kids do. They're curious about this world. And they ask the best question. They ask the question of why. It's a profound question. Simon Sinek is an author who does uh, self-help styled books or books on marketing and management. A lot of books out there don't just fit in the self-help category or the business model anymore. They kind of all blend together. A little bit of psychology, a lot of stoicism, some self-help, and then shake it up and let's sell your product, right? He got real famous because of a TED Talk called The Power of Why. And there he looks at products. And he likes to show you how there are certain products that have hit our marketplace that were the best design product in a product realm, right? It has the best technology. It had the best storage capacity or, or whatever. But those products died on the vine. And we are all accustomed to using the other products, maybe that weren't as superior technologically or what have you, but they succeeded instead. And he breaks it all down to the very fundamental act of communication and says, people don't care what you do. They don't care how you do it. They only care about why you do it. 
If you can get somebody to understand your why, well, now you can tell them about how and what. But if you get them to understand your why, you can change things. He says, uh, Dr. King's speech is, I have a 10-point plan speech. No, it's I have a dream speech. Why? Well, I don't disagree with my son or Simon Sinek. Whys matter. We're in a season, religiously speaking, called Lent. We, we journey with Jesus to the cross for 40 days. We go uh, and slim down our life through fasting for 40 days, maybe from some sort of food or some sort of entertainment. And we scale back to focus our mind, to focus our heart on that cross. And we walk with Jesus. And really, when we focus on the Lenten story, we're being reminded of the story it's rooted in, which is the Passover story of our Jewish brothers and sisters found in the, the first testament of our Bible. There, you see the, the great initial telling of Passover. Right now is the season on the calendar for the Hebrew community that tells the story of Passover. How many of you, by a show of hands, have been blessed to be invited by a Jewish brother or sister, friend, to a Passover supper dinner? A goodly number of you have been uh, fortunate enough to go to one of those. I, we've been to several in our life. One of them that was the most interesting to me, Colleen and I received the invitation to go across the street to the temple to do the all-city uh, Seder supper and there was dignitaries there. I mean, you should know because I was invited. No, I'm kidding. There were ambassadors, I think the mayor and police chiefs and uh, all these folks. And then Colleen and I were in a corner table. <clears throat> we were sitting with somebody's grandparents, I think. We actually sat around a table with a bunch of elderly gals from New York who had that lovely New York accent. And it was clear to me that they had been around the block a time or two. They had been to their share of Seder suppers and they were not enchanted by it. For them, it was old hat. But you know what happens in a Seder, don't you? Each element of the, the feast is meant to illustrate something of the journey and the pilgrimage of the people of God in the wilderness. And there's a child at Passover who is asked or told to ask these questions, these handful of questions that help to illuminate the great story for each of the people there. Why is it that we eat this? Why is it that we save room for that? Questions of why are so very important. At this Seder, one of the questions, one of the why questions was being read, and one of the gals we were sitting with who had been to her fair share of Seder suppers rolls her eyes, flicks her wrist, she goes, come on, Rabbi, get on with it. Open the wine, preacher, she said to me across the table. Yes, the why question is fundamental. And when they're really fundamental, they're asked with frequency, just like at a Seder meal. Now, I think the apostles agree with our assessment, too. I think the question of why is a fundamental question to their imagination. 
In today's text, as they all journey along, they look down and what do they see? A man born blind, blind from birth, which is not just a physical malady. This is something of a social malady. There's a lot going on here. And they want to know a proper theological seminary question. Rabbi, teacher, professor, why is this man blind? Why does this man suffer so? Did his mom have some sort of unrequited, unspoken of sin? Did his dad have some dark shadow self? Whose sin was it that made this person suffer the consequences? That's a common way of thinking about sin in the ancient world. Your mom, your dad, your grandparents, their sins, their wrongdoings may in fact come to visit you. And I'm not saying that that's altogether true, but it is true that sometimes the greatest punisher we have are our own misdeeds. We can harm ourselves with our misdeeds as much as we can harm someone else. And so they asked the question, what happened to make this man born blind? And Jesus offers them an answer. I wonder if it satisfies them. He simply says to them that his blindness is meant to reveal the power and goodness of God. He doesn't really go in for all the theological debate. He doesn't enter the theological dialogue. He doesn't set up a set of theological prolegomena for this. No, he just simply says a one-off, and then he moves on. I wonder if the disciples were satisfied with that answer. Yesterday, as I was driving my son Max around, I could tell you when I told him that he couldn't go with B to the birthday party. Why? Because you're not invited. It's Ruby's friend. That answer did not satisfy him. Does this answer satisfy the reality of human suffering? Well, what if Jesus gave him a really straight, like, theological treatise on the matter. Well, let me give you the 10-point reason, the 10-point set of reasons why this man was born blind. Very theoretical, very philosophical, well-reasoned. For that person's suffering, would it suffice? Would it satisfy? No. I don't think so. Yet, I'm convinced that religious types think that we would fare better if we only had satisfying answers. Because we live in a world where we know loved ones that start asking those hard questions in the midst of suffering or while watching people suffering. Why does pain touch the life of, uh, of the loved ones that we know? Why does another tragedy fall here? Hasn't Tragedy came and visited enough in this home. Why do I have cancer? Why do I have this diagnosis? If only I had more time with mom and dad. 
Why do tsunamis happen? If we just had the answers, we would feel better, don't you think? If we just had the answers, then, then we could help people who, who were struggling with those real existential issues. And what's more, when they come asking us and we can hear them doubt, we can quell them of the thing that scares us the most as believers, that they are doubting. It's as if, for us, doubt is the greatest enemy. Let me assure you, to Christ, it's a good friend, not an enemy. I think one reason why religion has fallen out of favor is we've offered too many answers when we should listen. And it's offered answers that don't meet people where they are. I remember I was in seminary, and I was with a group of seminarians, and when you're at this stage of your development, theologically speaking, it's like what they say when they say that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you only have a couple things to work with, that's what you use, and you project that onto the world around you. What Your toolkit is the projected lens with which you see the world. So I was with a couple friends from seminary, and there we were talking to somebody, and somebody was suffering yet another tragedy, I think a loss of a loved one. And they asked that question, that question that we all will ask if we haven't already, why? My friend sprung into action, feeling a set of a certain sense of confidence from, from the, the, the teaching that he had gained and the mastery over it he thought he had. And he said, well, I, I can tell you, it's, 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 it's not God who's to blame. Don't blame God for your sorrow. Don't blame God for your pain. Don't blame God for your, for your tragedy. No, 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 it's, it's not God, it's, it's sin. I can assure you that when people hear that who are in suffering, if they don't rebuff you in argument, they're just being polite with you. And this person said, well, how do you mean sin? He goes, well, you see, God created, God is good, God created the world good, and that's all great. And altogether it was good, but then humans, so you see, humans decided to mess everything up. Well, we didn't really mean to mess everything up, but we thought that we could be like God, and we disobeyed God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and fruit. We ate the apple, and the guy says, well, how do you know it was an apple? Well, let's argue for the sake of the case that it is an apple. It was that we ate the apple, you see. And so then there's this thing called the fall, you know. Bad things happen now to good people because the world has fallen. It's all broken. And it all makes a lot of sense on one level. But what about those of you in agony? You have that hole in your heart that only a loved one could fill. What does Jesus do? Isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't answer the question. He doesn't go into theology here. In fact, the rest of the text is nothing more than a theological argument about what Jesus does between the Pharisees. Or rather, Jesus spits in the dirt, makes a little mud, puts it on his eyes, the blind man's eyes, and he's healed. 
Now, I'm not going to defend for you the veracity of a miracle from the Gospels, but what I can say is this. As you are a disciple of Jesus today, and you ask the question, why does the world feature suffering, or why does my loved one have pain? The way Jesus answers his own disciples is to say, that's not your question. The why is not your question. The answer is, what are you going to do about it? When you look at suffering and you understand it, does it make the world right? Or does it make the world right when you can alleviate the burden of another? You see, I think true religion is right there. True religion is not when we pray more, read our Bibles more, feel good about our intimate privateness with God. Real religion is when we bring the light and grace of God to bear upon broken things. When you can walk with those in pain. When you can help make somebody whole. I like Fred Rogers, don't you? Fred Rogers, I just look at the world right now and I kind of think a whole lot of grown-ups need to be watching Fred Rogers again. He taught children how to look at others in the neighborhood. Very simple biblical ethic there. He always thought his greatest gift to the world was his silence, but additionally to it, he would say that he learned one of the tricks that he had from his mom, and his mom would say, Fred, if you don't know what to do, if you don't have a grand vision, if you don't have a grand plan, if you don't have all the efficacy in the world, if you don't have all the money in the world, if you don't know what to do, find the helpers. Find the people already helping and go to where they are. Because at least you can join the helpers. He did a lot to help people reframe their vision of the world. And a man as great as Fred Rogers, he didn't think by the time he retired that he made a big difference in the world. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Answer me. He didn't make any impact. That's what he felt. Right after he retired, the Twin Towers were bombed. And he was called by PBS to come out of retirement to say something to the country. And he says, what do I have to say? And so he comes back on for a special. This time he's really gray in the hair. He looks at the camera and he just tells the audience, be tikkun olam. There's a Hebrew phrase. You need to be a healer of creation. Tikkun olam. Be healers of creation. Religion may be unpopular. It may increase in its unpopularity, but don't let it be you because of it. Offering simple, fast answers. Offer the gift of your time. You're quiet. And when you can alleviate the burden of another, do so. And when in doubt, tikkun olam.